The scripture reading this morning is going to be from Luke 24, verses 19 through 24. What things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Before we jump into our sermon for today, let me join the other voices in saying a word to and about our college students. We know that many of you have finals this week, not all of you, not all of you are at OC, and we acknowledge that. Some of you are at UCO or other schools in the area, and we are so thankful that, that you are a part of our group too. Whether you're here or you're watching online, sometimes it's difficult when you feel like most everyone else goes to one particular school and maybe uh, not as many people go to the school you go to, but you are a valuable part of this campus ministry and this church family, and certainly to our OC students. You mean so much to us. It's been an interesting semester. I, I know that uh, none of us really knew what to expect. We knew it would be a challenge, but I just wanted to commend you, I commend you for so many things, for staying committed, for doing all the things that you needed to do to get through the semester, and for most of all, for being committed to being a part of a church family when it would have been very easy for you just to sort of fade away. Thank you for being committed. Thank you for making worship and ministry and service and fellowship a priority. It, it, it's such an example to us. It's such an encouragement to us. And it's been different for us too because we haven't really been able to have you in our homes. We haven't been able to do some of the things that we enjoy doing as a church family for and with our college students but we get to see you every week, and we are so thankful to do that, and we're thankful for uh, what you're doing. So just have a great break whenever that break begins, and we, we will be praying for you. We look forward to the time when we are back together again, and so our prayers for God's protection over you and his blessings over you as you finish up the semester, wherever you're in school and as you um, go to break. So let me offer a word of prayer on your behalf. Let's join together and pray. Father God, thank you so much for our young men and women, those who are going to college, uh, trade school, those who are in a transition period of their lives, ready to uh, enter that next phase. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for the things that they are doing, the ways that you are revealing yourself and your will to them, Father, I'm thankful that they are a part of this church family and that they are an important part of this church family. The energy they bring, the enthusiasm, the, the way of thinking, their perspective, their faithfulness, and so many other things. Father, our prayer is that you would guide them and walk with them over the next week and weeks as they finish up this semester, that you would protect them over their break, that you would bless their time with family and friends and loved ones, and Father, that you would bring us back together so that we may continue to serve you and worship you with one voice as one body. So, Father, our prayer is for your protection and provision over our campus ministry. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you might open it up to Luke chapter 24. 
There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, highly respected, and he came up with a three-phase approach to look at the Old Testament Psalms. And the three-phase approach was orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And it's a great hermeneutical or a great interpretive lens to look at the Psalms of Israel's past, the Psalms that are in our Bible, because you get to see some of the different things they were going through as they expressed their heart in worship or lament. And so you get to see them sort of move through these different movements or these different phases. So it's a great way to interpret Scripture, but it's also a great way to interpret life. Orientation, disorientation, and a new orientation or reorientation. Because think about your own life. We, we all go through these movements. We all go through these different seasons of life when we seem to, to have everything going like we expect and all of a sudden everything is turned sideways and we try to adjust and, and try to make this what we always say is the new normal, the reorientation. And sometimes this process happens in a matter of seconds or minutes Sometimes it's uh, hours or days or weeks. Sometimes it's years. Sometimes it's a lifetime. But as you think about your own life, you can probably identify different seasons or different movements through these phases. And they probably vary in severity. You know, sometimes maybe you go through this and it's really not that big of a deal. And other times maybe it is catastrophic. It is a huge deal. I have an example for you. Two Fridays ago, I was in the backyard working on some limbs. In case you didn't know, our town had some, some tree damage recently. <laughs> we all know that because we're all dealing with it. So I was out in the backyard, and I was trying to, to take care of some of these limbs. And, you know, I have some physical limitations right now because I've had a few surgeries this year. Some of the, uh, the, the things inside my body that are supposed to stay connected have come disconnected this past year so we've had to reconnect them Um, and so I was a little bit limited physically but I wasn't going to be out there that long and and I wasn't going to lift any huge branches and so you know it wasn't wasn't that big of a deal I was taking it very easy I was being very smart I thought so evidently I wasn't just physically limited I was mentally limited for a few minutes it wasn't my proudest moment I know better. I usually wear gloves when I use a chainsaw. But for whatever reason, you know, I wasn't going to be out there that long. It's just small branches. I didn't wear gloves. And long story short, I ended up cutting my fingers with the chainsaw. (laughs) I don't know if the finger is like the pore spout for all the blood in one's body, but that's what it felt like. I cut my fingers, and they bled like a, like a chocolate fountain at a wedding. I mean, that's what it looked like. <laughs> Blood going everywhere. And in that moment, I was propelled into disorientation. I'm not kidding. I mean, before that moment, you know, we had plans for the evening. Everything was going to be fine. And now in that moment, everything had changed. And it wasn't pain that washed over me. It was intense frustration. I can't believe I did that. That was my first thought. I can't believe I did that. And then I started having all these questions. Are we going to have to change our plans for this evening? 
How much is this going to cost? How much hassle is this going to be? What is my wife going to say? <laughs> and what if I cut something important? You know, tendons aren't exactly going well this year for me. What if I cut a tendon in my finger with that chainsaw? So I had all these questions. And that's, that's what happens in disorientation. You, everything is turned on its head, and you start to ask yourself all these questions. You start to question everything because before that, you kind of understood everything. You knew what to expect. And you knew what was going to happen, and now everything has changed, and you have all of these questions. And that's, that's what I was doing. I was asking all of these questions. And that's when my intense medical experience and training kicked in I was a lifeguard in high school <laughs> so I thought okay what do I do do I need a tourniquet well it's not like I'm out in the wilderness I'm 30 yards from my back door I'll probably be okay but I remembered you know elevate get that hand above your heart and so I, I raised my hand and I started to take off toward the house and then I realized I should probably pick up my chainsaw you know take care of your tools you don't want to leave them outside you know, I could be in the hospital for days. What's going to happen to that chainsaw? I could get rained on. The armadillo could get it. <laughs> so you can go back to YouTube and catch up on that. So I pick up the chainsaw with my right hand, but if you may remember, I've had surgery on my bicep tendon, and so I'm not supposed to lift heavy things, and so I'm sort of hugging it onto my leg. With my right hand bleeding up in the air, I'm walking to the back door. I mean, I look something... I look like something out of a horror movie, you know, chainsaw, bloody hand. I bust into the door and I say, I cut myself. I was so frustrated. And you know how expecting parents have the suitcase packed by the door ready to go? <laughs> I think that's what Carrie Ann does now. She has my insurance card ready, her phone charger, a few quarters for the vending machine. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and so off we go. And thankfully, I had a great doctor who put me back together and I didn't cut anything important it was just a few stitches and so we were able to put my fingers back together you can't say I have band-aids over them right now for, for your sake that's good I started to put a picture up there but it wouldn't it wouldn't be good and so thankfully he put me back together and everything's going to be okay but you think about that it's kind of a silly example but maybe you can relate to this idea of orientation where everything is going just as you had planned right I mean there is there are good things happening you know what to expect you have dreams and ideas and visions and you can't wait for those to be achieved and fulfilled everything is status quo you're in your routine things are going well and then all of a sudden disorientation you're propelled into this movement of disorientation and things are turned sideways and you feel insecure and you have questions and you have doubts and you don't know what you can count on because all those dreams and all that status quo is now you can't count on it and many times people stay there they never leave that disorientation they live their lives in a constant state of confusion and anxiety and not knowing which way is up but hopefully we move through that and we get to a new orientation, a reorientation, not the old orientation. I mean, after this experience a couple of Fridays ago, I, I can assure you I will not use a chainsaw without gloves again. You see, I have a new way of thinking. You say, well, shouldn't you have thought that way the first time? Yes, but it took that experience, maybe, 
for me to reorient my thinking, to think in a new way. And that's why that movement, that phase is so important because it realigns our values. It causes us to rethink what we thought was true before. And so in Luke 24, we have another example of moving through these phases, this three-phase phased movement through perspective and thinking and worldview. It's at the end of Luke's gospel, and we pick up the story in 24, during disorientation. Jesus had been crucified just outside the city of Jerusalem just a couple of days before. And his triumphant disciples who entered the city with so much expectation and anticipation and joy and celebration are now dispersing in disappointment. They are disoriented. Jesus has been crucified. And so we catch up with a pair of sojourners on a road leading out of Jerusalem to a small town on the west side of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So let's pause there for a moment. We don't know the exact identities of these two travelers. We know one in the text is identified as Cleopas. And many scholars think he's probably the same one that's identified in John 19. The spelling is a little bit different, but we read that there is a woman, one of the Marys at the cross, her husband is Clopas. And most scholars think it's probably the same person. And so maybe here on the road to Emmaus is Clopas or Cleopas and his wife. Or some other scholars have said, well, maybe it's him and his son that tradition says is someone named Simeon. Or maybe it's Cleopas and a friend, a fellow disciple. We don't know for sure, but we know they're on the road. And we know that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, joins them, these two disoriented disciples. But they don't recognize him. Now, For certain, Jesus is resurrected in bodily form, but something about his appearance makes it impossible or improbable to be recognized. Remember, Mary thought that maybe he was the gardener when she saw the resurrected Jesus at the tomb. And so these two don't recognize Jesus. Maybe for whatever reason, God keeps them from seeing Jesus as Jesus. They don't recognize him. What they know is their Jesus, their Messiah, their rabbi, the one on whom they had placed their hopes, was dead. They saw, they heard. He hung on a cross. He was taken, he was beaten, he was crucified. And so on the road, they are talking about all of this. And Jesus says, hey, what are y'all talking about? And Cleopas seems startled by the innocent question, what are we talking about? Where have you been? We're talking about what everyone is talking about. Have you not been on social media? Check Facebook, it's all over it. We're talking about what happened to Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus says, what happened to Jesus? And I wonder if he had a little grin on his face when he asked that. Well, what happened to Jesus? Back in the text, verse 19, the second part of verse 19. He was a prophet, 
powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. These two are skeptics at best, right? They are so confused. They are the definition of disorientation. (laughs) Everything they thought was going to happen, everything they thought was true, has now been turned upside down, and they don't know what to think. Look at that phrase, those three words, we had hoped. Have you ever said those words? Have you ever thought those words? In the pit of your stomach, have you ever expressed those words to God? We had hoped to get pregnant. We had hoped to have a healthy child. We had hoped to get through this marital conflict. We had hoped for a better job. We had hoped for a new home. We had hoped that our children would grow up and be faithful. We had hoped that the doctor would have different news. We had hoped that the chemo and radiation would work. Maybe you know what those three words sound like coming out of your mouth, out of your heart. They say, we had hoped You see, life on the front side of that phrase is completely different. It is agreeable. It is predictable. It is almost enjoyable. There is promise. There is anticipation. Hopes are high and the future is bright. On the front side of that phrase, we had hoped. For these two, the front side of that phrase was pre-Calvary. It was their orientation. Jesus had crowds clamoring he had done all these miracles he was going to be the messiah the one they had been waiting for they had welcomed him into the city of jerusalem the holy city praising him hosanna hosanna blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord they had cast all their hopes on him he was going to deliver israel maybe make a a new kingdom develop an army overtake rome that was their orientation That was on the front side of these three words. But Friday happened. That dark day that saw the death of Jesus. And as they watched the life drain out of their Messiah, they felt the hope drain out of themselves. We had hoped. We had hoped he was the one. Just a few verses earlier, we see some of the disciples hear the report from Mary that Jesus has risen. But in verse 11, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Maybe these two travelers bought into this nonsense. It can't be. He can't be alive. We saw him. We heard about it. Everyone's talking about it. He is dead. And it wasn't just that that Jesus had been the object of their hopes and dreams and desires. Jesus should have been defeating the pagans and the powers of the day, not dying at their hands. 
They could not wrap their minds around what was happening. They were completely disoriented. Maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe if you are truly honest with yourself, you say, you know, that's where I am right now. This crazy COVID stuff, the political stuff, the election, that is where I am right now. I just, I don't even know what to think. I don't know what's going to happen. Before all of this, everything was, was understandable. Everything was predictable. I was in control of my life. I knew what to expect, and now everything is just crazy. Maybe you know what it's like to be disoriented. Maybe it is the pandemic. Or maybe it's a situation at work or a family crisis. Maybe it's health concerns or the death of a loved one or the suffering of a loved one. Or maybe it's anxiety and uncertainty. And all of these things or one of these things or something else has propelled you into this this place of disorientation. And you don't know what to do. And you are walking on the road to Emmaus. And the text says, like them, your your face is downcast. And you utter those words, we had hoped. We had hoped. A woman named Mary McLaurin has a very rare condition. It's called developmental topographical disorientation. DTD. Whereas most people have sort of a mental map in their heads, an internal internal compass, so you kind of know how to get around. I mean, you may, I know some people don't know, I can't remember east, west, north, south, but you kind of know how to get around. And, And to some extent, you have a mental map in your head. Well, Mary had no mental map. This condition caused her to just never know where she was, basically. And one time she was staying at a friend's house and she took their dog for a walk And she was just a few blocks from where she started, but she might as well have been 100 miles from home because she was lost. She didn't know where she was. She didn't know where to go. She didn't write down the address of the house is what she she normally did. So she had no clue how to get back. See, that's what it feels to be in this stage of disorientation. You look around and nothing is recognizable. She just simply needed something familiar, a landmark, or someone to say, here, let's, let's find our way back. Someone to walk her home. Ultimately, that's what she found. Someone was able to help her eventually find her way back to this house. You see, disorientation is difficult. It is so difficult, but it can also be helpful because it's it sometimes forces us. We, we sometimes have to be in this place of disorientation for us to realize that we are not in control. Disorientation causes us to pull over and to say, wait a second, am I going the right way? Who's driving this? I think I'm driving this. I forget God is in control. It causes us to reevaluate our priorities, to rethink our values. It causes us to possibly, hopefully, spend time in confession and repentance about ways of thinking, ways of acting that are dishonorable to God, but they just became status quo. That's just who we are. It's just part of what I do. And now all of a sudden, everything is questioned. 
And maybe it needs to be. I think in many ways for the church and for our nation over the past several months, it has not been enjoyable, but maybe on some level it has been useful because we have been confronted with some things that we probably need to be confronted with. And so disorientation can be helpful. I would encourage you to embrace the abruptness of disorientation, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. Like the woman, you need to get back home. You need something familiar, something known. You need capital T truth, not your truth and my truth and everyone else's truth. You need the truth. You need coordinates on a map. You need a compass. You need direction. You need someone to take you by the hand and take you home. That someone is hope. You see, our pilgrims on the road to Emmaus, they were disappointed. They were disoriented. They had lost hope. But what they didn't realize is that hope was right there with them. Hope was walking with them on the journey. Back in the text, verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, these two, they needed their hope to be resurrected and redirected. Their hope was in the right place, Jesus, but it was in the wrong expectation. Jesus as an earthly king, as an earthly messiah. And so Jesus, without them even knowing at this point who he is, decides to help them find their way home. And so he opens up the scriptures and he explains who he is, the true nature of who he is. And he says, what happened should not have been a shock to you. You should not have completely come undone at the sight of Jesus dying. Our scriptures predicted it. They pointed to it. And if you look in the Gospel of Luke, on at least three separate occasions, Jesus says he's going to be taken by the authorities, he's going to be found guilty, and he's going to be crucified. They had no excuse. But they couldn't understand when they saw it happen. Why? Because that's not what they wanted. They couldn't accept it because it wasn't what they wanted. You see, when hope is anchored in our wishes, in our desires, it is hard to move. And maybe their entire orientation for life was based solely on what they thought, what they wanted, how they viewed the world. Not on a suffering Savior, but on a Savior who is going to deliver them from suffering. As N.T. Wright points out, the phrase from Cleopas, it's, it's so close to being accurate. And just one slight change makes it accurate. Rather than they crucified him and we had hoped he was going to redeem Israel, it should be they crucified him and that is how he redeemed Israel. So close. And yet they weren't there because they couldn't allow themselves to go there. If you can't see hope, the truth is maybe you're looking in the wrong place. 
Hope was right there with them, walking with them. So as they approach the village, Jesus continued on, and they implore him to, to stay with them, to stop, to not go on, to stay with him. And so he agrees to stay. He knew these two had, had finished their day's journey, but they had not reached the place they needed to go. So Jesus was willing to take them there, to take them to this new orientation. Back in our text, verse 30. When he, <clears throat> when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Man, stark difference between their two trips, right? On the way from Jerusalem, the text says their faces are downcast. You can almost imagine them dragging their feet. They are disappointed. They are disoriented. We had hoped. But now, on the way back to Jerusalem, they're running. They're skipping. They're excited. They can't wait to get there. Reorientation. It took having their eyes, eyes opened to Jesus. And maybe it was the, the sight and the sound of Jesus breaking and blessing the bread that became that familiar landmark for them. Or maybe it was in that moment where God just chose to open their eyes miraculously. Either way, they saw Jesus. They finally saw Jesus, and they finally saw hope. Here's what I want you to know. Especially if you find yourself right now in a place of disorientation. Hope is always right there. Always right there with you. Just open your eyes. Just open your eyes. We lose hope because our hope comes from what we want rather than what God wants. We lose hope because our difficult circumstances blind us to Jesus. Because our difficult circumstances don't match up with our expectations and assumptions about life and about God and about faith. We lose hope because we listen to a world that when given the chance would rather crucify hope than cling to it. Hope that is anchored in Jesus will last. It will endure. It will endure hardships. It will endure suffering. It will endure anything that comes your way. It exceeds wishful thinking because it is grounded in the promises of God. That's why Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let us thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was through his loving kindness that we were born again to a new life, a new orientation, and have a hope that never dies. This hope is ours because Jesus was raised from the dead. That truth is the thesis statement for the story of the two sojourners on the road to Emmaus. Their hope was restored and put in the right place because Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection becomes our reorientation for life. Hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. 
Don't get trapped in the sorrow of Friday or the confusion of Saturday. Jesus isn't on the cross, and he's not in that tomb. He is alive. He is walking among you, with you. This is Sunday, and Jesus is alive walking with you. During this pandemic, it has certainly been a time of disorientation for many. It's been a time of intense suffering for some. But for many, it's been a time where things are just different. Schedules are different, routines are different, rhythms are different. We don't know what to expect. But maybe we should make the most of this disorientation. Maybe we should use this as an opportunity to pull over and to to question some things like our values, like our priorities, like who we think is really in control. Maybe it's a time for us to be propelled into a place of confession and repentance, of humility. We don't have to stay in disorientation. And it doesn't necessarily take a vaccine or a cure to get us through to the new orientation, the reorientation. It takes a change of heart and mind, a way of thinking. It takes opening our eyes to see Jesus, the hope that is walking among us. So reorient your life and anchor your hope in Jesus. You find hope when you open your eyes. You know, we sang that old hymn right before the sermon, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. It was written actually almost 200 years ago, 1834 by a man named Edward Mote. Listen to the words again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is seeking sand. Almost 200 years old, and yet those words are still true and relevant for us today. After Edward Mote wrote this song, a friend asked him to go visit his wife who was sick and dying, so he went over to see her. And usually when he visited someone who was sick, he would pray, he might even sing, or or they would join together and sing a few hymns or songs. And so... He was asked to sing, and he took out that crumpled piece of paper with those words that he had just written, and he sang these lyrics, these words to her. She asked him for a copy of those words. She wanted a a reminder of where she stood, of where her hope was. She wanted reassurance in the face of death that her hope was in the right place. So he gave her a copy of the words. She died not long after that. You see, hope is always right there. Sometimes we just need to open our eyes 
and see him. Will you do that? It takes faith. It takes a reorientation of thinking and perspective sometimes. It takes humility. It takes surrender. Will you open your eyes and see Jesus? He's right there with you, walking with you, no matter where you're going, no matter what you're walking through. Hope is found in Jesus. It's built on nothing else. If we can serve you in some way or encourage you, we can pray for you. Let us do that. You can go to our website, the prayer page there, and fill out a prayer request. Or if you're here today, you can come forward. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ. You know what what Jesus did is real, and you believe in him. And your faith is in him, and you're ready to make that known to the world and to God, to surrender your life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to wear his name. We would love to celebrate with you today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.